Chives, no, no, no. slideshow, hello, and we will start in oh. Leviticus 24 today. So last time we went through and we kind of did the dating for all the different festivals. We ended, you know, started with Passover and ended with booths and, um, and did all of that. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. Um, and regularly was understood to be all the time. Um, so, got distracted by a note, sorry. <laughs> Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever through your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Verse 4. 24. That way that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I was quite confident. I just <laughs> Do you do you need a Bible? There's there's a couple 50s. of them up there. Yeah, some of them are songbooks, so don't grab <laughs> don't just grab something because it might not make sense. Um there you go. Well, I was visualizing yeah. as you were talking, I was like, okay, I'm drawn No, no, that's good. But just in case you want to actually follow along. But, oh, it's just a talent showing dad. Okay. Um, before the Lord regularly. Verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. Bill, do you want to go make sure the air is on? Or maybe turn the fans on? That's a little one. Um, and you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So the people give it to the Lord, and the Lord uses it to feed the priests. The one that says, there you go. Awesome. Thank you. Now an Israelite woman, I think it, is it blue? It's the blue tape, isn't it? Okay. Is it on? Okay. Now an Israelite woman's son, <clears throat> whose father was an Egyptian, so Egyptian father, Israelite mother, snap. went out among the people of Israel. Now, and keep in mind, this is, this is, they're in the wilderness when all this is happening, okay? So they've got the mixed multitude. They've got the people from Egypt who really did convert. They've got the people who we've kind of started seeing pretended to convert so they could get out of the plagues, but now they're out in the middle of the wilderness going, what did I sign up for? I don't know that this is better. So two of them had a kid. The Israelite woman's son, and keep, keep in mind, they keep referring to him as the Israelite woman's son. Mm -hmm. So the fact that, that he, you know, that, you know some, some will say that because it was the mother who was um, the Israelite, but regardless, I think he's, you know, he's being referred to as the child of the Israelite parent. Um, but the child of the Israelite woman's son and a man of, and a man of Israel fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. So the fact that they fought, not the problem. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilomith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. And um, may that be maybe foreshadowing there, because we know what's going to happen with Dan later on as we're talking in Revelation, how they're him and Ephraim are... <laughs> kind of on the outs there. Um, and they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. So now you can kind of understand why Jewish people don't like to even say the word God. 
you know, they'll say Adonai, they'll say Hashem, which means the name. They won't, they, they, they don't they, even write it down. Right, they don't write it, they don't say it. You know, the, the popular trend in a lot of Messianic congregations now to pronounce yod heh vav Hey with their understanding of how the vowels should sound is really offensive to Jewish people. Because in truth, those, those four, they're actually partial vowels. So that they really, if you were to say them all at the same time, they sound like breath. And yet, you can put noun markers with them and create over 1,000 different noun combinations and over 1,000 different pronunciations of the letters Yotevate. And at least one of them is a blasphemy. So the Jewish people say, you know what? We don't know the noun markers wherever back down the line it wasn't passed down whatever happened we don't know the correct pronunciation we're not going to do it we're not going to take the chance we're saying the one that's a blasphemy because god's very very serious about not blaspheming his name and i agree with them you know he knows who we're calling out one of the the things that bugs me about the sacred name movement well unless you pronounce his name out loud with confidence you aren't really saved oh well, how are you so sure your pronunciation is the right one? Maybe you're not saved, you know? <laughs> or maybe God, being who he is, knows when you're talking to him and when you're not. You know, my children can call me all sorts of things. You know, mom, mama, mommy, you know, sometimes crystal. Crystal, especially if I'm away from them and can't hear the crystal, you know? <laughs> and I hear them and I go, oh, that's my child. I know my child. Because I don't know them because, you know, oh, you didn't use the right name. You're, I'm not your mother. <laughs> They're my child because of their, my child, you know. So God's very serious. If you blaspheme the Lord, you should be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Question. Yes. What is this? What? Do you mean by soldier? Is um, that a, is the the non-Jew living among them, or or living dwelling in their camp? Yes. Does um, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death? Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. Um, and that is, and what the, what they interpreted that to mean is one who killed an animal must pay its market value. So if I kill your animal, I mean, if I kill my animal and we eat it, that's fine. But if I kill your animal, I have to pay you for it. Yeah, I can't just kill your animal and go, oops, it was an animal, you know. <laughs> I didn't know. I can, but it takes a lot of concentration. Yes. <laughs> the, he I have the Hebrew there. <laughs> um, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Now, right there, just sounds awful. Um, but the sage has expounded that these penalties are to be understood as monetary payment for the damages. Okay, so this was not ever interpreted as, I get to punch you back in the face, you know. It, it was never, you knocked out my tooth, get me pliers. It, it was not, that was never, <laughs> never the understanding, okay. And it's interesting, we were watching a documentary several years ago about um, uh, medieval England. And that this, this tradition basically carried down out through the Middle Ages. And they, each town had, like a, at the courthouse, they would have a, a chart of what each body part was worth. And it was basically our modern insurance. That's how our modern insurance works. If you're in a car accident and you injure a certain part of your body, they actually have a formula that they plug in what part of the body, whether you're male or female, your age, your life expectancy, your contribution to your family, how this impacts it, and then blah, 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 the computer spits out a dollar amount that they offer you. You know, if you are, if you are a, um, a you know, 35-year-old father of three and, you know, husband of one, and you are the breadwinner, your life is valued at more financially than, you know, the 22-year-old the single 
guy who has no responsibilities. Not because you're technically worth more, but because you're caring for, you know, your obligations are more. And so um, it's, it's really hard when people have, you know, 14-year-old children who are going to be lifelong coma victims now, you know, because so they, they, then they have to try and guess, well, what would he have gone into? What would he have done? We don't know, you know, so it, it but that, it's the same idea. If you do something to someone, you owe them compensation. You can't just go, sorry, and walk away. You have to say sorry and make amends. You have to fix it. Uh, so whoever, and, and so this is interesting because when you get to Yeshua and he's saying, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, okay, he's not, he doesn't contradict this. What, what he actually goes on to say is, yes, you're entitled to that, but I'm telling you, lay, lay down things. Don't worry about, don't be caught up, you know, really what he's saying is don't be caught up in your rights, be caught up in your responsibilities. You know, I'm, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Yes, you are do that. I'm saying if somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek. I'm saying if somebody steals your coat, you know, your cloak, give them your shirt. So he's, he's you know, he doesn't say, that doesn't count anymore. He's saying, stop, you know, because what the, our society, it's my right. I have a right to this, you know. You're in my parking space, <laughs> you know, you're, whatever. You're in my pew seat, you know. This is where I sit. My family sits here every week, and you know, <laughs> yeah. It, it's really, I yeah, and and yet, yes, we are we are entitled to certain things. It's just what we do with that that's the issue. So verse 21, whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. Because there's a difference between harming someone and murdering someone, and murdering doesn't fly. Um, you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. So, and you can bet that there was not a lot of cursing of God going on for quite some time after that. Didn't you say when somebody got stoned, they pushed off the cliff? Yeah, one? there was, I don't know if they talk about that in here. Um, let me see. This is, okay, so this is the notes on the blasphemer. The Torah now proceeds to a narrative that seems to be out of place. The story of a Jew who committed the atrocious sin of blaspheming the name of God, heaven forbid. The Midrash cited below gives a historical reason for the connection of this incident to the previous passage. Reb Hirsch, among others, offers a philosophical reason for the juxtaposition. The long series of laws dealing with the tabernacles and the offerings was preceded by Sidra Mishpatim, which deals with the relationship among the people. So too, after the passage of the showbread, Leviticus deals mainly with such relationships. This emphasizes that the goal of the Torah is to establish a nation of human beings who seek perfection in their relationship with one another, no less than in their relationship with God. In this context, it is instructive that there is a stress on the requirement of, that the menorah and table be pure. Only if there is an essential purity in our wisdom, which is represented by the menorah, and business dealings, the table, uh, can our social relationships be sound. We're actually going to get back to that with the menorah. So I find it interesting that God has us going through these passages in Leviticus at the time, rate we are with Revelation, because every week there's like some reference to something in Leviticus that we get in Revelation. And I'm like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> so... The narrative of the blasphemer, the bridge between the temple laws and the social laws, symbolizes this need for purity. One who, heaven forbid, utters a curse against God, fails to subordinate his own ambitions and passions to God's will. Such a human failure leads easily to the subjects that follow. The episode of the blasphemer, murder and property damage, the sort of antisocial behavior that makes it impossible for society to function properly. Indeed, human peace and harmony must flow from man's desire to be molded and controlled by God's law. Um, which is kind of what Yeshua was saying. You know, if you're right with God, you're going to be right with your fellow man. If you're laying down your life for the Lord, you're going to lay down your life for others. You know, you, you need to not have your focus on you. On the question of how they did it, yes, they had to have at least two witnesses, so there was a whole group of people. You're that, 
as far as how the death was done. Oh, yeah. yeah. There, there was a whole group of people. Generally, now, I don't know at this point what happened, um, but it became, what it developed to was that uh, they would basically get the person drunk and then push him off a cliff where they fell on rocks. Oh, that's but, just so nice. I know. <laughs> well, I it's... The lazy way to stun someone. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was... by default. <laughs> it, it was in part... <laughs> it was in part... It's kind of like in states, though, that have... that have You can be shot for the death penalty. Where, where they give, like, ten people a gun so nobody actually knows who did it. It's so that nobody has to live with having killed the person. Now... Do they? Wait, so do we know that they stoned there. until death? I mean, is it possible that they stoned someone and the person was just very well? And that and I suspect that was the other thing they made sure of it by pushing them off a very high cliff because they had it's rather, rather thorough. Someone and the person was just in pain, and it was like putting someone out of their misery. I I'm, I I would imagine, yeah, <laughs> especially when people took up stoning on their own, like stuff was happening a little more towards. Roman times, you know, when they weren't allowed to do it officially. That actually, that actually seems kind of humane. I had a friend find a, their cat had mutilated a bird and then left it. Right. And it was suffering. Right. And I told her that you put it up to the tailpipe of the car so it just gets to sleep. There you go. There you go. Which is feels horrible, but it was going to either right. suffer and die well, or and that's... die. So they're going, okay, if we have to do the death penalty, let's try to use the <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and that's and there's also because for the person Don't leave me this job. Some people are like, well let the cat finish it. But you can't it, force a cat. You can't force a cat. The cat it. might not be very nice about it. I mean no. at least with the tailpipe it just go to sleep. Well, and that's that you know, it, it's you don't want to you don't want to live with having killed someone. And, and it can stir up passion. I mean, if there's somebody who enjoys that, yeah. that experience is not going to be a holy one. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's going to, you got to be really careful. It's one of, you know, it's one of those things where, yes, there is a place for removing the evil from among you, but not in a way that stirs up evil in those who are still left. You know, it's, it's got to be. Um, and this is this is why the uh, as they as they get settled in the land and they have the cities of refuge. If I accidentally kill someone in your family, you know I'm swinging an axe, my axe head goes flying and, and kills somebody. Your kinsman redeemer has the right to come kill me and take and take vengeance for your family. So the person who made the, who did the accident runs to the city of refuge and hides and stays there, and he is guaranteed safe passage back for a trial. If it turns out it was an accident, he's guaranteed safe passage back, and he gets to live in the city of refuge until your whole generation dies, and it's the next generation, because anybody in that generation might just be stirred up to go and take so, vengeance. So intentional murder was the death penalty. Yes, intentional murder was... Jail. You go... Essentially, but it wasn't jail. It was just you go live in the city of refuge. If it was an accident, you live in this. It, kind of, but you were living with the Levites who were running the city of refuge. You had, you know, you were helping them do their farming or their beekeeping or whatever they were doing in their towns. Like kind of like, yeah, yeah, you would lose access to. I mean, they could come visit you, but you couldn't. I mean, so yes, there is that, but it, but it was not done like our modern jail system, where well, you chose to run. Yeah, yeah, you chose to run, yes. It was your protection. Um, you had your freedoms. It, there was just, I mean, it, it, you, when you do something like that, even accidentally, you live with that for the rest of your life. And, and so to be able to live and, and not bring pain to the people in your town that were their family, I mean, there, there's a certain redemptive quality to it also. I mean, you can never make that up. And, and, you know, so, but then once that generation died, you, you could go back to your town because that kinsman redeemer was not be able to take out vengeance on you anymore. And, and, you know, assumingly things had kind of chilled out and you could sneak back in and <laughs> set up camp again. So, um, so the people of Israel here did, did as the Lord commanded. So revelation that was a nice short little... 
I, I've just learned every time I think, gosh, that was a short uh, Leviticus, then I know we're going to be long in Revelation. So I don't, I don't have another one anymore. <laughs> so Revelation 11. And what were we, I left my notes at home. What were we doing at the end of the last? Does anybody remember? he just been told. Yep. Read, read, the last, read the last little bit of. Like the last paragraph? Yeah. Yeah, that was when he ate the bittersweet scroll, right? It tasted the sweetest honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told you must prophesy against many peoples, nations, languages, and tongues. Makes me think of those ginger mints. <laughs> Ginger's nasty. And we ate these candies that really, really, they were sweet and then really hot, and then yeah. now my stomach is burning, so... Today. Yeah, yeah. You can have one if you'd like no, to try you. one. They all, most of the kids liked them. You want to try one? They're actually, ginger's really good for pregnant tummy upset. Okay. It's like, I'm, I'm good. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So. I'll have one. No. So. How funny. Then I was. We'll tell you the story of it after. It's quite funny. But then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. So he's, he's eaten the scroll. It's bitter in his tummy. Then he's given a measuring rod. Um, now, the temple being measured is the third temple that Ezekiel talked about in chapters 40 through 48. And it's going to be um, the earthly, the, the abode during the millennial kingdom, okay? And it's, which is a time of strict judgment when Messiah rules with a rod of iron. And, and I, that's really important. All of the references um, in the Psalms, in the prophets, the, uh, about God sending a rule of iron, or I will break you with a rule, the rod of iron. All of these references to the rod of iron. Yes. Is this the thousand-year reign? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, but that, that is... Um, the, the references to the rod of iron are to that time when it is his earthly kingdom. It is not. It is not like some ongoing threat hanging over everybody's head. If you don't, you know, if you don't, if you step out of line, I'm gonna take a rod of iron and smack you upside the head. It's, it's, it's. When you read that, it should make you think. Oh, this is talking about the millennial kingdom. This is talking about Messiah's earthly reign. Um, and and the the uh, very act of measuring something uh, speaks to judgment. It, it's a reference to judging something. Um, and having the authority to judge it. So, uh, in the raw, I guess Psalm twenty, uh, Psalm two nine, it refers to the rod of iron also used to break men. It's millennial kingdom. So, uh, measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, 42, um, we've talked about a little bit before, but it's, it's associated with the timing of significant events. Um, for example, when they were wandering in the wilderness, there were 42 segments to their journey that it was broken down into the storytelling of. Yes? Okay, I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm confused. Okay, so the 42 months, are we in the thousand-year reign, or are we in the tribulation? Well, this is, this is, let go of all of that idea. Okay. Don't worry about I'll any of listen. that. Yeah, don't worry about I any of that. Because a lot of, a, a lot of that just come, a lot of that comes from trying to read the book of Revelation like a linear story. Right. And what we've been, what we've been talking about is the fact that there are actually four levels of, of, of life. There's the eternal heaven. Right. There's the throne room of God. There's the realm of souls, which is called the sea in Hebraic writing. So when it talks about the sea, it's not talking about, like, the ocean. It's talking about the souls. And then there's the earth. And the point of everything that's going on in Revelation is that when the time comes for Messiah to return, all of these realms have to be united. Okay. They have to be reconciled together because the fall divided them. Okay. The garden existed in in a perfect unity state. It's spoken okay. of as a temple, and it's, it was the, you know, there's an earthly, t there's an earth, a heavenly, the, the heavenly throne room of God is mirrored in the earthly temple. And the Garden of Eden is talked about as a temple. And so it, in the garden, it was all together. You know, God was walking with man in the garden, and the souls were all together, and it was just one united place. And then the fall happened, and everything fractured 
and was separated out. Okay. And so we've been, we worked through um, uniting the throne room of God with the realm of souls. And we've just last week and the week before we're breaking through to where things were happening in the earth. And so the question is, does it happen in an order or does it happen all at the same time? But just being experienced in different realms. Does that, okay. does that make sense? Okay. Because at the end of all of it, it's the, the elders fall down <laughs> like one time. But it looks like they fall down four times okay. in the storytelling. Okay. So since Hebraic writing is circular, I'm of the belief that we went through what was happening in the, ha the throne room of God, and then we went through what was happening at the same time in, in the other, you know, the, the sea, and now we're going through what's happening in the earthly so realm. It's since God is eternal, it's not linear, but it feels linear. It's circular. We experiencing. So as, it's like something spinning down. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's why all of the prophecies of God, except two that specifically refer to Messiah's return, are spoken in the last, in past tense. Okay. When God says, you know, in the end of days, I have done this. Because to him, it's all done. <laughs> it's, you know, in that eternal heaven that's outside of time it's it's accomplished you know the cross was a you know we i think we've we're going to get to it or no the lamb who was slain at the beginning or at the foundation of the world and yet happened at a particular point in time for for the earth okay and so so it's there's a, that but and that's that's one of the really important things to keep in mind because this is a vision that he's having this is a you know, it's, it's something he's experiencing and trying to describe for his reader. But sometimes you experience, it's kind of like um, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. He came up with it in like a six-second flash where he saw himself riding on a beam of light. And how many volumes of books have been written to try and explain what he saw and what that meant and how to do the math of it and what the impact of it is. So, so this is, you know, this was, he had this vision and now he's trying to communicate. This is what I saw. This is what it looked like, you know, and we're like, okay. <laughs> and so, which is what, what is hard when, when they take and do like the Left Behind series where they go, and then a beast that's going to look like this, you know, is going to ride out from this mountain. And, and you're going, well, no, that was just, he says, like a, you know, or it was, it was as though this was happening. And, and it doesn't necessarily translate that, you know, and we're just now, we're in verse, or chapter 11, and we've just now gotten to where stuff is, you know, at the end of chapter 10, actually being experienced on the earth. So it's, it's, um, it, it's not that laid out step-by-step -step linear thing. So he's, he read the scroll, and now he's just measuring the temple. And, um, you know, and, be, and it's not there when he's seeing it, but he's, he's at it. And what we've got with the 42 is, again, significant things. Um, the generations from Abraham to David, from David until the Baptist, uh, captivity of Babylon and then from Babylon to Messiah is 42 total 14 14 14 you know so it's it's all in Matthew 1 17 and we're reading right now about the 42 months but we're going to also have a second 42 months and those 42 months together do add up to seven years okay and they it is in Hebraic writing it is the great tribulation but it does not necessarily look like <laughs> Right. What we've been right, told. Right. <laughs> so, so we are specifically in, you know, at, at the beginning of what is going to be the earthly reign, we are encountering these last final, it's, it's actually called the final Shemitah uh, cycle, um, which is the final seven-year cycle um, that, that signifies the coming Messiah. So the there's the first 42 years of that, or the first three and a half year, uh, 42 months, which is the first three and a half years, and then there is the second half of that. So that's what we're getting ready to break down. Um, says the, the distinction between the two sets of 42 months may be reflected in this verse from Daniel, which is Daniel 9, 26b through 27. And it says, the leader who has come does destroy the people, and its end is with a flood, until the end is war, determined are desolations. And he has strengthened a covenant with many, one week, and in the midst of the week, 
he causes sacrifice and present to cease, and by the wing of admonitions he is making desolate, even till the consummation and that which is determined is poured on the desolate one which Matthew 24, Yeshua talks about it. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, uh, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And this, um, you know, this, this has happened a few times. It's just very specific. It, there is also going to be this final time. You know, kind of like we talked about, there are lots of anti-messiahs. You know, Hitler was an anti-Messiah, absolutely, trying to kill God's people, you know, not doing anything according to God's word, um, despite his arguments that he was. Uh, you know, um, different Roman emperors. There have been lots of anti-Christs, anti-Messiahs. But you say the whole kingdom of Babylon was an anti-Messiah. Right, right. And Rome, you know, functioned in that way. And so, so but this is, this is speaking to something that will happen in that last seven years. Um, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, it says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to, so not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Messiah had come. Let no one deceive you. So this was at, at back in that, you know, when they were writing this letter, people were thinking, has he already come? Did we miss him? Did he come back and we didn't know it? And so they said, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So there is going to be someone or something that sets itself up in place of God. And I think one of the dangerous, the dangerous things... we can't miss it. Yeah, you won't miss it. You will not miss it. Don't worry, you're not yeah. going to miss it. <laughs> no, if somebody tells you it's already happened, you can be like, nah, because <laughs> I didn't see it. You know? and, and so is it going to be, you know, and we've talked about this in the past few weeks, is it going to be a person? Most movements have a leader who steps up and does that. But we're not supposed to be afraid of a person. It's what he is doing and what he is representing that is the actual threat. Um, you know, whether it be a different religious system that is then declared as, you know, this is God's, this is what God's doing. Um, you know, so, and, and, and you will know it, you will, because there will be, you'll be faced with a choice. Um, in fact, what they say is the first 42 months lead up to the anti-Messiah proclaiming himself to be God, which, and it's a picture of the union between the counterfeit righteous, uh, righteous man and his false bride. Okay, because the whole point is to have the actual righteous one and his bride at their wedding feast. And yet Satan is always trying to bring together, you know, kill the bride or block the righteous one or distract everybody. No, look, this is the real wedding, you know. <laughs> so we're not supposed to go to the fake wedding. We're not supposed to take our gifts to the unrighteous one. We're supposed to hold out for the real wedding because we're the bride. So here's the thing. If you're the bride and somebody invites you to a wedding that isn't your wedding, and says, no, no, this is the real bride, you get to go, that's not my wedding. <laughs> I did not send out those invitations. <laughs> I did not invite you all here. No, no, no. Because when my Messiah comes, I will know it's him. I don't have to be confused. So if you start going, maybe, is, is that him? No. <laughs> that's the deceiver. And you just hold, hold out. Your, your groom will come for you. Um, and that's the second set of 42 months leading up to the true Sadiq, the true righteous one with his bride and the creation of the temple. So that's the temple will be created at their wedding. Um, so, and, and in fact, the number 42 actually is associated with the idea of the gate to the Holy of Holies of the third temple, whose measurement is six cubits by seven cubits, which is, which is 42. Uh, and this gate comes into fullness when the heavenly groom and bride come together when he returns. So verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Um, okay, so that was a real short verse. Um, and we're about to see, 
There's more. Why do I not have it on mine? Read it, because. Okay, thank you. I knew there had to be more. I'm like, where, where's the rest of the verse? That's the shortest nonsensical verse ever. Um, okay, so 1,260 days divided by a 30-day month, because in Hebrew you only have the 30-day months, is 42 months. Okay, so it's spoken of as months for the first half, but then it's spoken of as days for the second half. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to our crazy count your knuckles and see which, you know. <laughs> I get it. So um, also a measure of time. Uh, it's a, So it's another 42 months, and it's associated with judgment. We know that it's associated with judgment because of the reference to sackcloth. You put on sackcloth when you're dealing with judgment and mourning um, and the coming of the temple. So the two, it says the two witnesses. Now, here's where, the, this is where, um, we're recording. This is where the two witnesses, um, everybody wants to, you know, lots of different theologies, ideas, or doctrinal ideas coming out of this. He's, uh, but John says, the two witnesses, he says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And this is a reference to uh, Zechariah. And I'm going to read this passage. It's kind of long from Zechariah, but it's a real big picture. Uh, it's chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. It says, And the angel who talked with me, this is Zechariah's vision, came again and waked me like a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl upon its top and seven lamps on it and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon its top. And there are two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon its left side. And I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the Lord to Serubabal, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward its headstone, shouting grace, grace to it. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the lampstand and upon its left side? And I answered again and said to him, What are these two olive branches, which are beside the two golden sprouts from which the golden oil is poured out? And he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So Zerubbabel saw what John saw. And, and he saw the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Um, so when placing the elements of Zechariah's and John's visions um, together, the lampstand or the menorah is representative of the community of Israel and the Shekinah, which is the, the portion of the spirit that is sent out with them, um, who are upon the earth. The bowl on top of the menorah is the, the foundation of everything. And the olive trees, or the two witnesses or anointed ones, are Hod and Netzah, which are um, go, majesty, his majesty and victory. And this is in the different, the qualities of God. So we're seeing, you know, the foundation of everything is there and his eyes that go out and look at everything. And we've got um, um, majesty and victory are, are his witnesses. And um, it says, I don't want to move ahead of where we are in the text. Okay. Um, so John's text shows us that the two witnesses have an impact on the amount of light that's going to descend in, and we're gonna we're gonna get to this in just a second. So the two witnesses um, control the amount of light that comes in. They're gonna actually block out the light, 
And with the absence of God's light comes all sorts of plagues and death. Um, this is a direct function of that aspect of God associated um, with these things. And on the left and the right of the foundation are majesty and victory, which in this case operate through the work of two anointed ones or witnesses that stand on each side. And God will arbitrate between these two. And these two are associated with war on earth and, pro and prophecy and are referred to as disciples of God, these two sephirah, these two um, qualities of God. So the Jewish tradition suggests that Moses and Elijah will actually come at the end and may be the ones to fill these roles. Um, and, you know, John's text refers to two menorahs, which seems to reflect the idea of the heavenly Israel and the earthly Israel coming together. So this is another one of those, is it going to be Moses and Elijah? Maybe. It's a very long-standing tradition. Might be the way that God actually lets them know that he's doing what he said he was going to do, kind of like all the miracles that Yeshua did to identify himself were what they were looking for specifically. He would heal a man who'd been blind from birth. Hey, he did that. You know, <laughs> he would do these different things. Hey, he did that. So is it going to be them? Probably. But again, it's not who the people are. It's that they are representative of what God is doing. So they, so basically, the plagues are not God keeping out. I mean, it is punishment, but it's moreover a, a, um, a preview. Like you see a movie preview, it's, so it's sort of more like, do you really not want to be with God? Because these are just right. a sample of the consequences of yeah. being apart. And it's from not God. for his children. So it's not for his children. They're they're still there so in our you story. Say to all those people, you say that you don't want to be with me. Right. This is a glimpse of what. This that's is what it like. means. Yes. Is that what you really want? Right. Because um, earlier in the in the book, we talked about how. This is all set, his vision is settled in the, the 10 days of awe between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which is the days, um, the, those who are completely righteous and those who are completely um, unrighteous, their books go in, I'm guessing they're, <laughs> oh, <laughs> there was, so the books, the books, all three of the books are opened by the Lamb. The books of the righteous, or the book of the righteous is closed. If you're in that book, you're good. Book of the unrighteous, those who have completely rejected God and knew what they were doing, closed. Their judgments are sealed. All of this is about the undecided. It's about the people who haven't put their book in one, their name in one book or the other. The people who are, you know, whether they just couldn't understand it when they were alive or whether they lived in a time where it wasn't presented to them or... or you know, whatever has caused them to be at this end of days undecided. So the two witnesses, it says, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So these are the plagues, though. I mean, think back to Egypt. Water to blood. I mean, it's not like these are new, unheard of plagues. These are the plagues that God uses to reveal himself. And they are, they are going to have the ability to do that as needed. And verse 7 Oh, and um, rain is an allusion to spiritual and physical provision. So uh, we've been talking about how the things that are happening in, you know, the, the sea are now going to, are breaking through and affecting the earth. And now we're looking at what's happening on the earth that's affecting the earth. Will there be a physical drought? Yes. But is it a physical drought just because God wants to starve people? No, it's a physical drought because that symbolic picture of, of wisdom falling on you is, is shut off. You know, it's, it's a picture. You want no wisdom, you get no rain. You don't, you don't understand, you don't get the provision. Um, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Okay, now this is the first mention of the, a spiritual beast in a negative sense. And, and I want you to keep in mind as we do that, it, keep it in um, context. 
because we're all the way till halfway through chapter 11 of Revelation, <laughs> where we're just now getting to this beast. And what's the beast doing? He's killing the witnesses. Okay, this isn't, you know, some giant dragon has come out and all the people are running. And, you know, this is, this is a spiritual battle that's going on. So this, this beast that comes from the pit. Um, the entry of this beast into the physical realm from out of the abyss is a direct result of the unrighteousness of mankind. And, and I didn't put this big giant quote in here, but they had this really amazing piece of text that talked about how um, when the Torah was given, the Israel embracing Torah caused the beast to be shoved into the abyss. And he was no longer free to roam around on the earth. And that the wickedness, when, 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 the, when they would abandon Torah, it would allow him to come out of the abyss. And when they would re-embrace Torah, it would push him back into the abyss. And so it was just this, I'm like, that is really, really cool to think of, you know, our upholding God's righteousness has an impact, you know, and, and God's calling us, partner with me in this. Be part of this thing I'm doing on the earth. You, you know, you can be with me, embrace my word, and hold back what's coming, you know, hold back these things. So this is, the fact that, th that he's coming out of the abyss means, despite the witnesses, the people are rejecting God, embracing unrighteousness, abandoning, you know, any kind of truth. So, eight, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Um, the broad place is actually an allusion to the Temple Mount. And the it says, um, from the study, it says, the text gives a negative connotation to Jerusalem in light of the lack of Torah that's emanating from there. So basically what they're saying is Jerusalem will have become overrun by, by paganism, by evil, by unrighteousness. And because um, it says symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. So Jerusalem becomes like Sodom and Egypt. So, um, so this cannot happen now because... Oh, but this couldn't happen now because Israel is free from the big countries right now. Well, yes, this would this would be, but this would be something that um, remember this is uh, during that that final seven years. This is this happens at a particular point. So the seven years could start Israel free in, in, in at this yes. point. Yes, the seven years could see a complete turnaround of everything. And, and that's kind of the whole point, is, is that at this beginning of the seven years, nobody realizes, you know, everybody's just going about doing their own business, and then God's like, okay, time's up. And these things start happening. So, um, let me see here. So, uh, as with the, the righteous one who falls only to rise to greater heights before, uh, this reference to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is going to fall spiritually at the end of days only to reach even greater glory in the millennium. Um, Isaiah 2.3 kind of talks about that. It says, And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it's, um, you know, it's going to kind of hit a low in order to bounce back and hit an even greater height. So verse 9, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Um, three and a half days mirrors the idea of the 42 months or the three and a half years, both being a half of seven. So there's, there's symbolism in, the, in that number of days. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So the people who wanted to reject God are really annoyed at these two prophets who are doing plagues and saying, hey, you know, you need to, the, the, this is, you need to pay attention to the Lord. Which is kind of why when you see a person, you know, just holding a sandwich board saying, you know, the end of the, the end of days has come or, you know, 
repent for the day of the Lord. Not one of the two prophets, probably just mentally ill. But <laughs> because the two prophets will actually be turning water to blood and doing all of these things. So, I mean, you may want to still listen if you are not right with God, if you see the sandwich board, because that's a lot kinder than the, <laughs> than the water to blood. <laughs> you don't want to get there. Um, but they are such a torment to the people that they actually create a celebration and a holiday out of their death. You know, woohoo, they're dead, let's go. You know, exchanging gifts and celebrating. Yeah. <laughs> so 2 Thessalonians um, 2, 10 through 12 says, and with all deceivableness of unrighteous, unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love and the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in, un, in a, unrighteousness. Or as they suggest, the idea that giving them enough rope, enough rope to hang themselves. And, and this is one of the reasons why I, I very, very strongly believe that at the end, everyone will be with God except those who really don't want to. It, it's not like God is saying, you know, oh, I pick you, I don't pick you. And it's not like God is saying, um, you know, come to me, but there's just, you know, uh, you got to perform properly because I'm not taking an untrained dog to the show. It's, it's really God is going out of his way all the way up until the end to give love, to give truth. He sends the witnesses, and, and that your example was really great. It's, okay, you don't want me? This is what you're in store for. But then the beast comes out and kills them, and people are like, ha-ha, see, I don't got to worry about you because the beast is just going to kill them. Now I don't have plagues. We're good. And let's celebrate. So verse 11, but after the three and a half days that they're celebrating and that the bodies are laying there on the temple mount, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So they've been lying on the same spot for three and a half days, and they get yes. back up. Is that symbolic to Jesus? Yes. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a connection, yeah. yes. Um, in the ancient world, you were not believed to be dead until you had been dead three days. Because eight, something like 80 or 85% of comas you come out of in the first 72 hours. And since they didn't really know, you know, they didn't have our modern technology to measure brain waves and stuff, basically they left you there for three days. If you woke up, yay. If not, you're dead, we're gonna bury you. <laughs> so, so basically they're really dead is what this says. Three and a half days means they're really dead. Nobody can question their death. And then the breath of life comes back into them. And great fear fell on those who saw them. Because pretty much if you rejoiced over their death and exchanged presents with people and celebrated it, you should probably be scared that they're alive again. So verse 12, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Um, and again, though, this is that, that picture we've talked about, you know, when it says up and we've got all these pronouns, you know, heaven isn't, up there, you know, it's it's more that the Shekinah. This is the cloud that is the Shekinah, the um, the the cloud that surrounded Israel in the wilderness. They they are taken into that cloud. So so they like like Yeshua with his you know when he was taken back into the spiritual realm, back into heaven. And it says, um, and all their enemies watched. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. <laughs> it's Jerusalem, though. <laughs> so the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the, then the so, seventh... Yeah, go ahead. So in this point, it's saying that even though... Is it saying that even though some of those people were deceived and rejoiced when the prophets... They thought they were dead. Yes. That, that some people were genuinely then afraid and repentant. Well, and we don't know they if they were genuinely glory, afraid and repentant. And they gave glory to God. Yeah. They were terrified. The other people were just killed. They yeah, the other people were killed. Right. And they were killed. One of the things, 
did they actually repent and worship God? It doesn't actually say that. Okay. Um, so it's more like, yeah, it's more like um, when you look at Daniel, was it Daniel? I think, it's, I think it's the book of Daniel. There's several times where you run into um, different miracles that happen, and, and the king over that pagan nation goes, Okay, I'm passing a law that you can't say anything bad about that God because he scares me and he's real and we're not going to get on his bad side. But the nation doesn't actually become okay. a converted nation. Does that okay. make sense? So, yeah, that makes so sense. they're terrified and they give glory to the God of heaven. Do some get saved? Probably. Do some just, you know, don't, don't be mad at me. Glory to you. Well, you are, yes, you are bigger. <laughs> Yeah, okay, we're good, we're good, right? We're good, you know? So so there's probably both. Okay. Um, but the 7,000 people that are dead, now, yeah. you could actually, did they decide to worship God, and so he took them away from the rest of what was going to happen? Or did they get their name in the book of the unrighteous, and they, he was done with them? I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't okay. say. Okay. okay. So I'm not I'm not going to project that on there. Because it's really easy to go, see, God damned them and he took the he smite them out. Or maybe, you know, they've been through enough. Bring them home. We'll keep working on the rest of them. Okay. I don't know. Okay. Got it. So um one of the, the connections that, that is good to note here though is um the death of witnesses is, is a similar thing. So in Matthew 27, then behold, the veil of the temple, this is after Yeshua's death, the behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Um, so when the witnesses... You know, when they're taken away, there's an earthquake and, and there's all of this destruction. And so that, that um, we've talked before about how going between the realms is often, you know, when you go into the sea, it, it causes a physical reaction here. Or when something from the sea comes here, it causes a physical reaction. And so the earthquake tends to accompany the Spirit of God coming all the way down to the earth or, or you know, Yeshua rising from the dead and... And so, um, you know, there's, there's just that, that physical earth connection. So the second woe is past, the third woe is soon to come. And then it says, the, then the angel blew his trumpet, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So... Um, this ends the sixth trumpet or judgment, and with the arrival of the seventh trumpet comes an aspect of unity with the six before. It's, it's so that everything that's come before and the kingdom, we're getting that connection finally. It's all, you know, we're finally pulling together into that everything being connected. Um, you know, there's a level of completion here because in verse 16 it says, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Um, so with the people turning away from God's Torah and destroying the land, um, God's light was, was kept away and all sorts of evil and death and stuff came about. Um, and then when that was completed, then God makes himself known again and makes himself seen. And um, he is responsible for rewarding um, the righteous and destroying everything. So the, na the, the God names El-Hai and Shaddai are associated with um, the foundation of the tree of life because he's the provider. Um, Shaddai actually is, is usually translated God of the mountains, but literally Shad is this part of the woman, the mountains of the woman. And so it really means the, the ample-breasted one. 
and it was a reference to his ability to provide for his people. And, and you know, there's references in the Old Testament to him longing to comfort his people as a mother comforts a baby at the breast. And so it's, you know, this is, this is his gentle provision. This is, this is his, um, you know, his foundational love for them. And it is the, lo that's, this is where the ark in the heavenlies is. And we're going to get into that. So verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. And they actually, in the study that, that I've been kind of reading in conjunction with what I'm looking at, they actually think that this verse should be at the beginning of the next chapter. So that's where they're going to talk about it. So we'll revisit this verse at the beginning of next week's chapter. But we have finished the sixth trumpet, the sixth judgment, and, um, you know, and... and Yes, there's some scary and troubling and, and fearsome stuff in there, but really only if you're not right with God. So if you aren't sure what you believe, you know, this, this is why, this is why, you know, the rest of the world reads this and says, oh, there's an end to all of this. We should get on the right side. <laughs> we don't want to be celebrating over, over these, you know, these, these witnesses when they come back to life. Got it. Got it. We're good. And, um. And yeah, so we're good. So any questions as we wrap up this chapter? No. <laughs> Thank you. Anyone I'm else? Really impressed if there was. <laughs> it's a lot of you kind of soak it and be like, okay. <laughs> I think more than anything I find in really studying Revelation, it's it's more getting rid of it's like, oh wait, it doesn't say that. Oh, oh wait. No, that isn't in there, you know, and, oh, that's what that means. Oh, that's where that happens. Okay, yeah, I thought it was just this big. I thought that was, like, the big bulk of the book. No, okay, it's just this one little verse here. Okay. Read the Bible yourself. Okay, what? Read the Bible yourself is where you can do a lot of that, though. Yes. When I read it, I was like, not what I Yeah, where is that? I love when I go to prove a point by finding a verse, and it's not there. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, maybe I need to study this one a little bit more, because you grew up being told this verse is there, this peace treaty with Israel. No, but it won't happen till a peace treaty with Israel. There's no peace treaty with Israel. It's not there. Okay, sorry, I guess we don't have to wait for that. <laughs> I guess that's not some bizarre political timeline that God has created and... And, you know, it actually says all the nations of the world will ally with a strong leader against Israel. And I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, that makes more sense. You know, as opposed to, you know, but I was just, you, I was taught that this is what it says. And then you go look and go, it does not say there. And, and one, one thing that I will share with you, in, in private message, because once he went public on my page, I banned the guy. Um, I, I got this last week, a, a, there is a self-proclaimed prophet on Facebook and he has, is sending out, you know, these warnings. There, there were a few, I don't know, um, there was reference to the fact that evil women are teaching and, you know, different things and, 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 uh, I, I almost stayed silent because usually I just go, oh, it's crazy person and I delete and then I went you know what I had been I had been looking I'm like God says to stone false prophets I, I'm not going to stay silent I'm not going to pretend like he's not a false prophet but I'm going to heap coals on his head so I responded with love and I I, I just said I I feel like you're trying to communicate something, but you're just shoving a bunch of verses together. You know, what are you, what are you trying to say? What's your point? And I want to understand you. I'm confused. And he came back, oh, well, I thought you would understand what the verses mean. Apparently, you're somebody in, in public ministry. I said, I am, and I know what the verses mean. I'm not sure what you're trying to say. 
And, you know, we went back and forth. And, and in response to that, I got, you know, Jeremiah prophecies thrown at me to it, you know, and, and God will smite thee. And, and God is lots of references to the rod of iron, you know, which I'm thinking, well, okay, in the millennial kingdom. And I don't have to worry about that because I'm good. And so I responded back and I said, I said, I, I am in ministry, and I am good with God, and my name is in his book of life, and I have nothing to fear from the future. So I'm good, thank you, but, you know, I, I'm fine. I, I hope you are too. And, and he responded back with more judgments and, and angriness, and I responded back, Perfect love casts you know, he who has a perfect love casts out fear because fear comes from punishment and God is perfect love as we see in this and I responded back and he came back with more judgment and I said, beloved, let us love one another for God is of love and everyone who loves is born of love and knows love. He who does not love does not know God, and and, and that was where he stopped and went public and I just was like because he kept saying you speak with the voice of a devil, and I'm going. What? <laughs> Proclaiming the love of God is not what the devil does. I think you've got this confused. I think, and he said, you are trying to make me question my God. And I said, listen, my God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If your God is any God other than that, my God is bigger than your God. And I'm not afraid of your judgments. God is love. Stop preaching fear at me. And I share that, not because it makes me, me giggle, because I really do. The guy's probably mentally ill. He's probably very unstable. But I'm hoping that maybe, maybe just speaking love to the guy will get him to question some of his, you know, if he's not mentally unstable, if he's just mean and angry, profity kind of guy, um, you know, to, to question that. But it makes me think of that, that final seven years, you know, like the things we were talking about today. The, the false bride and the false righteous one. And, and if you're thinking, fear, 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 scare, 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 you know, smite, smite, he's going to smite me, you're going to be more likely to run after the false one to avoid that. You know, I don't, God, God I'm scared. I don't want to do the wrong. I have to go over here. Okay, I'll go over here. As opposed to just resting in God's love. He says, you know my voice if you're mine. I'm your bridegroom. I love you. I'm taking care of you. I got you covered. I'm coming back for you at the right time. And you'll know when I come back. So when somebody is saying, you know, you speak with the voice of a devil, you with your love message. Well, I think we're on different sides. <laughs> I think we're preaching different righteous ones. And, and that's okay, because I, I got to answer for my my understanding. I got to answer to the one who tells me that I'm his bride. And I got to answer not, not to men, not to the fear of men. So just keep that in mind, you know, as, as should things happen in our lifetime, should we be that generation, should things unfold, and whether it be the final seven years or just our opportunity to try and be deceived, you know, just, just rest in God. Usually if you find yourself running around trying to do a bunch of stuff, you'll miss the point of what he's doing. You know, three and a half days later, it's his breath that goes in and raises them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, he, he's got a plan. He's got it all taken care of. So, so there's nothing to fear about any of it. So, and on that note, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you and grant you peace.